As we're sitting in prayer, let's pray together before we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us tonight, that we might see these words of Isaiah as your words, that they challenge us, that they encourage us, and that they help us to become more like Jesus. So bless this time now, we pray. Amen. Well, as Alan said, we're at the end of a long journey. I don't know what your image is of uh, the prophet Isaiah. I tried to look for a picture, but of course, uh, all we've got is uh, people's imaginations of what Isaiah must have been like. But I think you're gradually getting the picture, aren't you? This mighty prophet who raged against the sins of God's people, who brought despair, but also hope as well. When some of our Christmas uh, times in the next uh, couple of weeks, you'll hear more from Isaiah pointing towards the Messiah. Well, I'm not going to try and summarise the whole of uh, Isaiah or our series. I'm going to concentrate on this passage in front of us. Future predictions, of course, are difficult things, aren't they? Recently, we had an economic prediction made by the Chancellor in his autumn statement a couple of weeks ago or so. Now, these predictions by Chancellors, they use data from the past, from the present. And they use this data to look forward to what might happen Well, of course, the accuracy of these predictions are only as good as the data used. We need reliable data as we think about the future for ourselves, our families, our communities, the land in which we live. Well, we believe here that in this church that we can rely upon God's word as a way of looking at the future not only the prophetic word that's given in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament as well. It's a great book, isn't it, Isaiah? It's a great book. It outlines the problems of God's people and the solution that God is going to provide through his Messiah. In this passage tonight, there is hope for the future, but there's pain as well. There's encouragement for God's people but there's also judgment and sorrow. What I've called the good and the bad. And this theme of good and bad goes right through this passage. And it comes out in a lot of times through prophetic language and pictorial language. But the reality of the situation, the reality of judgment comes through clearly and points us towards the second coming of Jesus. So, let's make a start then. Uh, If you haven't got your Bibles open, it's page 752, 753, going through to 754. And because of the language and things, it's probably helpful if you keep it open. Now, it starts with the reality of God. A God who sends his message to his people through the law and through the prophets. A God who doesn't leave his people adrift in the world. 
Now, for the Jewish people who had been in Babylon, in exile, the city of Jerusalem was really significant, as was the temple. The temple was a place where they believed their God was found and could be worshipped. And they wanted to restore the temple to the centre of their identity as a race and as a religious people. But the prophet puts God into the correct position of power and majesty in verse 1. Look what verse 1 says. This is what the Lord says. It's not what Isaiah says. It's not what I'm saying. It's what the Lord says. And he goes on. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footsteps. Where is the house you will build for me? Their God is much bigger, much mightier than temples because he bridges heaven and earth, he creates them, he's in charge of both of them. In contrast to this, the people of God of Israel have pride in their temple and their religious activities. The Jews in the prophet's time and afterwards in Christ's time as well glorified much in the temple and promised themselves great things from it. So to humble them, both here and later times, uh, the prophets and Christ foretold the ruin of the temple, that God would leave it and then it would become desolate. And in fact, with hindsight of history, we know that the temple was destroyed by the Chaldeans. It was then re-established, but of course the Romans, after the time of Christ, totally destroyed it, and the ceremonial law was abolished with it. Now, so that the world might be prepared for this, God's people were told, as here, of what little account the temple was with God. He didn't need it. See how the mighty power of God is shown by the heavens and by the creation. So that puts God into the correct perspective. God is powerful, God is majestic, and he desires man's worship. But it's an important point to note here, he doesn't need religious activities, he doesn't need services, but he does desire our worship. See what the prophet says in verse 2. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts and tremble at my word. I wonder, when was the last time we heard anybody trembling at the word of God? It puts it into some sort of perspective, doesn't it? Because this is what the Lord desires of his people. Humility and contrite hearts. And that, of course, applies to all of God's followers right down to the present time. The worship of God doesn't need to be in man-made temples, but it needs to be in the hearts of mankind. God is not restricted by man-made organisations, methods of worship, orthodoxy. No, what God wants is a broken and contrite heart, humility and an openness to his spirit. So there we have the context of this passage to start with. What about the future then? What is the prophet saying about the future? Well, we read in verse 2 and 3 and in several of the passages going through this section of this. 
Firstly, we see that the prophet divides the people into two camps. Those that falsely serve God and those that don't. The good and the bad. And this division of people follows through the rest of the chapter. And I wondered, is this our understanding of people today, of all ages, of all sexes, races, wealth? Two divisions. People who worship his son, Jesus, in truth and sincerity, and people who do not worship his son and believe in him. The way we see this, of course, will affect how we react to Jesus' command to go and create disciples of all mankind. But what about God's reaction to his people? We'll look at verses 3 and 4. What's he say about those people that come to worship me using religious activities, doing but not keeping God's commands? Well, he says that God will act upon them. Look at verse 4. Judgment will come. I will send them great trouble. And in verse 15 and 16, there will be active punishment of these people. Future judgments of God's enemies, verse 15 to 17. Now, there is some evidence, the commentators say, that this may well refer to the Jews when they were captive in Babylon. But this prophetic word also points to the future, to all those who oppose the gospel in the later days, right up to the second coming of Christ. And so we've got strongly coming through this passage the reality of judgment. I wondered, do we as a people live within this? Do we have a reality of judgment? It points us towards the accounts of Jesus and his second coming when there will be judgment for all. So what does God want of his people then? Well, not independence from him, not pride and self-sufficiency, because we read in verse 2 that God will bless those that are humble and have contrite hearts, those that tremble at his words. So do you get the picture? What God wants... It's the opposite, isn't it, of confidence and self-sufficient people who are confident in their own righteousness and bring false worship to the temple. Look what it says in verse 3 and 4. They bring, and this is a different translation, they bring unacceptable offerings of animals to the temple. They have become lax in their ways of worship. They are proud people. No, what God requires is humility and a people who are prepared to come to him in repentance for their sins and for their hypocrisy. Humility is required of God's people. So we read in verse 4, God will send judgment upon these people who don't listen to him and don't respond to him. Think back to the time of Jesus. Think time when Jesus was teaching concerning repentance. Think of the time when Jesus was in the temple and he cleansed the temple and claims to be the Son of God. The religious leaders received judgment for their actions. The future, what will divide people, will be their reaction to God, whether they accept God's word. So there we've got a bit of the bad side, if you like, the judgment side. What about the encouragement to God's people? 
Well, look again at verses 5 through to 14. I can't read it because it's too long, but if you skim through it, you will see some of the following points from it. Firstly, having pronounced God's judgment, he then makes an encouragement statement. Okay, he says this to them. He turns his speech to those that trembled at his word, to comfort them, to encourage them. They will not be involved in the judgments that are coming upon their unbelieving nation. And we must be clear here. The people who rely upon their false worship and don't listen and act upon God's teaching will be judged. But those that truly follow Jesus will be blessed. One commentator put it like this. Ministers must distinguish thus, that when they speak terror to the wicked, they may not make the hearts of the righteous sad. In other words, we must encourage one another. The prophet, having assured those that tremble before God's word, will receive gracious messages from him. The word of God has comforts in store for those that by true attitude to sin are prepared to receive them. God will bless the people who are humble and are contrite. But looking, carry on, looking forward. The picture we've got here is of the coming faithful remnant. The end of Israel leads to a new beginning. Mourning leads to joy and the growth of the church. Look at verses 7 through to 14. Now, if you look at 7, you'll see this picture here we've got, and it's very apt, of course, with what's just happened with uh, Claire and Will. The prophet speaks of a woman giving birth to a child. It's a picture of the birth of a faithful remnant. It's sudden. It's so sudden, in fact, that only God can do this. And the word of God contains the promises of God that they are the consolation of the church. So what we're seeing here in these verses is the picture of the church which grows rapidly through the power of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Acts. And so there's a promise given that the people of God will be enlarged suddenly when conversions would be as sudden as if a child were born without the ordinary delay as great as if a nation was born in a day. And so we read in verse 10, that this will call for rejoicing by the people of God, because peoples from the Gentile nations will come to believe, and this, of course, is what we see again in, the, in, in Acts. You remember in Acts, we had the Roman Empire, those great Roman roads, we had Rome, Roman persecution, which pushed the Christians out. It enabled the spread of the gospel message. And it says in this passage that there will be rivers of peace and divine comforts for the inward man. The joy of the Lord will strengthen the believer. So what a fantastic prophetic word for us who live in this day. It's a great word. There will be true blessings for the true believer. But we will also see God's mercy and justice against his enemies. So, to go on then, verse 18, it carries on in this mould. 
We read again of the prophetic teaching of the great opportunity for conversion of sinners. The expressions in the text are figurative and express the plentiful and gracious help for bringing God's people home to Christ. It's a great picture, isn't it, of God's grace to the gospel church, which will contain people of all races. Look at the names given to the people and where they've come from, the different nations that they've come from. Verse 19, I will send some who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to Libyans, to Lydians, to Bai, Greece, and to the distant isles. All the races can come to Christ. So it points us to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, where we read, of course, of the spread of the gospel. And of course, it's the age in which we live. The age when the power of the Holy Spirit is working to bring people to see the glory of God and to worship the living God. So it can be a great encouragement to us. And we can be part of this work because we worship the living God. We worship the living God. But we need to realise it's God's work. And we need to be sure that it's God's Spirit is doing the working. As we consider the work of evangelism within our local area, whether that be up in the Jenny Lind, whether it be in the northeast of the parish, whether it be in the other areas, wherever. Are we working with God in this work together? Because what is spoken is that we need to bring God's glory to the community. Looking again in verse 19, right at the end of verse 19. It says this, It talks about the distant places who have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory amongst the nations. So it's not by our strength we do it. It's when people see the glory of God that they come to worship him. Of course, no one can worship a God they don't see. Jesus, of course, is the Son of God which we come to glorify. And so we worship God through the spirit of truth and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so let's invite the Holy Spirit into all these activities that we have in this church. And we have many. I think the last count I heard someone say about 25 different groups of people doing different things. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to glorify God and lead to a true worship of God. The opposite, of course, applies when this doesn't happen. We've seen the good points, we've seen the bad points, but if people don't worship God, then we see the results of this. Look at the last verse of this passage, verse 24. The death and destruction in verse 24. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worms will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. It points us, of course, to the book of Revelation. The prophetic word of what will happen in the last days when Jesus will return again. And such is the seriousness of this 
that Isaiah finishes off his prophetic word with it. He states the punishment of sinners in the world to come is here. It's a picture, isn't it, of the last judgment, the lake of fire as shown to us in Revelation. And I wondered as I was thinking and praying about this, are we influenced by this? Do we see our friends, uh, people that we spend time with, the community that we live in, being judged? Is this a reality for us? And of course it begs the question as well, doesn't it? Which side are we on? Are we worshipping the living God? Are we dependent upon Jesus' death for our salvation? Are we humble? Do we have contrite hearts? Or are we set for judgment and eternity without God? Have we rejected that offer of salvation, that grace that our sins are forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross? Or do we deny that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, we can only answer that question, each one of us, personally. But if you'd like, if you've got any questions about that, then do speak to Alan or myself or any of the leaders of the church. Because Isaiah's message is fantastic. It's very serious in one sense, but it's very offering hope in the other. He points us towards Jesus. He points us to the redemption of the people of God. And that's a wonderful thing for us to finish off with as we go towards Christmas time and the celebration of the birth of his son Jesus. So let's rejoice, but also let's be serious as well about the other side of the coin of which Isaiah talks so strongly. Amen.